Hello and welcome to this Over the Farmgate Policy Special podcast, brought to you by Farmers Guardian. I'm your host this week, Farmers Guardian Chief Reporter, Abby Kay. Don't forget to stay up to date with all Farmers Guardian's latest podcasts, subscribe through your favourite platform. This week on Over the Farmgate, we have an exclusive interview with DEFRA Secretary George Eustace to coincide with a big announcement from DEFRA on the Sustainable Farming Incentive, more commonly known as the SFI. On Thursday, the department published a long-awaited 2022 payment rates for the SFI. But what is it? The SFI is the first so-called component of the new Environmental Land Management Scheme, or ELM, and is supposed to be universal in the sense that all farmers should be able to apply for it without any paid-for support. The other two components of ELM, Local Nature Recovery and Landscape Recovery, are expected to be more difficult to access. The SFI will reward farmers for taking actions which deliver environmental outcomes, such as boosting levels of organic matter in soils or planting hedgerows to provide year-round food, shelter and breeding cover for birds and insects. DEFRA is aiming to have 70% of farms and farmland in the scheme by 2028. But farm groups and environmental organisations have already raised concerns about the payment rates, claiming they are too low and lack ambition. Christopher Price, for example, Chief Executive of the Rare Breed Survival Trust, so for all but the largest holdings, the rates were not high enough to make much of a difference to farm incomes. While Becky Spate, chief executive of the RSPB, said farmers needed proper incentives to tackle the nature and climate crises. But what does Mr Eustace have to say about this? Well, we asked him all about it, as well as the future of UK food production, trade policy, those controversial farming rules for water, and just how happy he is to be DEFRA secretary when polls show support for the Conservatives falling in rural areas. Welcome to the podcast, Minister. One of the biggest criticisms levelled at the government by farm groups is that the, you failed to put together a proper plan for food production in the UK. How would you respond to that charge? Well, I don't accept that. Um, we do think that domestic production is an absolutely critical part uh, of our food security. And that's why uh, we've got the Farm Investment Fund that we've announced, and there'll be further rounds of that. And that is all about supporting farmers to uh, invest in equipment and technology that will reduce their costs and enable them to produce food profitably. And in my uh, speech that I'm giving to the CLA tomorrow, I will be setting out in more detail uh, some of our um, thoughts and issues around food security and the importance of domestic food production and the contribution that makes to the government's levelling up agenda as well. You've also commissioned um, the National Food Strategy, Henry Dimbleby put that together, which was for the most part welcomed by industry. But your farming minister, Victoria Prentice, she recently told the International Trade Committee that you're not going to accept one of his key recommendations, which was to define minimum standards for trade and a mechanism to protect them. Is it not fair to say that your domestic policy to raise standards at home and your trade policy, which is to open up the UK market to produce from countries like Australia, they're not joined up, are they? Um, I don't really accept that. So we we have in the context of uh, the Australia trade deal, for instance, recognised that we have some sensitive sectors, in particular beef uh, and sheep. Uh, that's why we've gone for uh, a 10-year staging, so a, a TRQ for the first 10 years and then a a strong safeguard mechanism uh, after that as well. So we've, we've taken some steps to, to basically make sure there's a, a transition on those trade agreements. Uh, and it's also the case that we are working on at the moment on 
um, an SPS statement, which will be a clear statement of the UK's approach when it comes to uh, some of these issues around food standards in our international trade agreements. And of course, we've set up the Trade and Agriculture Commission as well that's also going to be giving advice in this area. When can we expect to see that SPS statement? We're working on that at the moment, so I'd anticipate that we'd be publishing that sometime early next year. I mean, regardless of those protections that have been put into the deal that you mentioned with Australia specifically, I mean, they're not like-minded, are they, on agricultural matters? I mean, they refused to sign the Global Methane Pledge at COP26, um, and we have the leader of the National Party, which is the junior partner in the ruling coalition there, say, the only way you can get your 30% by 2030 reduction in methane on 2020 levels would be to grab a rifle and go out and start shooting your cattle. I mean, these people aren't like-minded, are they? So why are we opening the door to their produce? Well, they are like-minded in, uh, in some elements, in some areas. But um, look, what I would say is we are also uh, obviously exploring the issue that sometimes calls carbon leakage, and that's the problem of uh, you know, exporting pollution to countries that aren't taking their responsibilities seriously. Now, we are looking at issues, for instance, such as a carbon border tax that should mean that you know, in future, uh, were we to go to that next step to try to start pricing carbon, you would apply that to uh, imports as well. Uh, and if countries like Australia were not pulling their weight, well, then that would be reflected in the um, a border adjustment tax as their goods enter the UK. Would you ever expect that that kind of carbon tax would be extended to domestic produce? Um, I don't think that's necessary at the moment because for the next seven years, uh, we've got a very large budget for agriculture that we are repurposing away from it being just an arbitrary uh, subsidy on land ownership and land tenure towards being a, a payment uh, to incentivize sustainable farming and farming practices that would reduce uh, CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions. So I think for the next seven years, we have the policy tools that we need to deliver the sorts of changes we're aiming for. And when do you expect that a carbon border tax, I mean, I appreciate that it's very much in the early stages of development, but are you looking at a specific time frame to introduce that kind of thing? Um, highly unlikely to be um, in the uh, in the near future. It's the kind of thing that um, uh, you know that might emerge uh, in say seven or eight years' time. Um, there a lot of work uh, would need to be done to make any market of that sort work properly. And you'd also want to try to get at least um, a, um, a significant number of other countries around the world doing the same thing. But you would expect that to be introduced by the time. Um, the beef and sheep meat tariffs are completely um, eliminated on products coming in from Australia and New well, Zealand. It'll be, there will be uh, protections of some sort on uh, beef and, and sheep coming from Australia for some 15 years. Um, so, yes, a lot can happen in 15 years. I want to talk to you about um, payment rates under the Sustainable Farming Incentive. Obviously, you've got your big announcement at the CLA conference tomorrow. Um, I know you're moving beyond income for gone after the pilot, but farm groups are still warning that these payment rates are too low to achieve the right uptake and farmers won't chase the payments or perhaps stay in the scheme long term if they think that output could be compromised. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, I think what we're, um, what we're asking in the sustainable farming incentive is, in fact, the, the kind of thing that, that, that some farmers um, uh, are doing already. 
and it's the right thing to do. So it is about doing uh, a proper nutrient analysis on your uh, soil and assessing uh, things like organic matter in your soil. Um, these are things that farmers probably should be doing anyway, because with the high cost of fertilizers, understanding uh, what the, the needs of their soil are matters. And it also includes things like green cover crops to prevent soil erosion. Again, uh, a lot of farmers are doing this uh, already. We want more to do it. So I think it is, it's a payment that, that some farmers who are already doing these things will, will be able to access very readily. Uh, but I think it is a, a sufficient incentive. It goes uh, above the old income foregone methodology that the EU uh, required. Uh, it's more generous than an equivalent rate under the old EU countryside stewardship scheme would have been. And I think, given that it's also the right thing to do for farm profitability, actually, um, farmers should embrace it. So you say it's fair. Can you explain, in simple terms, the methodology that you've used to reach these payment rates? I mean, how did you get to the figures that you finally managed to put on put on these schemes? Um, well, <clears throat> at the moment, uh, what we've done is... Um, increase some of the assumptions that we made on costs and uh, move the point of assessment up from the, the mean average, which is what used to be uh, the requirement under EU law, uh, to a, a, higher, a higher point in terms of farm profitability. And so um, it's, it, it's not a perfect science, but the crucial thing is the, the payment rate is approximately 30% higher than it would have been under the old methodology used for countryside stewardship. And do you expect to review these in light of rising inflation? Uh, yes, these rates will be kept under review uh, at all times. Uh, and that's the, uh, the, great, uh, the great advantage we have uh, now uh, with our own policies that we can tweak and modify things uh, as we go. I mean, we will also be changing the payment rates on countryside stewardship. Uh, one of the things I'll be saying tomorrow is that farmers who want to become early adopters of the new approach and start to make decisions now to be in the right place, um, they should look again at countryside stewardship. We've already seen a, a significant increase in the number of farmers seeking countryside stewardship agreements. We're increasing the payment rates and it could be a really good stepping stone to the new schemes once they're fully open in 2024. When can we expect a standard on beauty, access and heritage? I mean, have, why, why is the delay? Have these payments been more difficult to quantify? Well, we've obviously already opened uh, a fund uh, this, in this current year, uh, which is for farming in protected landscapes. And that does include uh, grant funding for um, work around landscapes, public access, uh, and some of those heritage assets. So there is a fund that we've already opened that is doing that work. But the sustainable farming incentive is going to be much more around uh, the sustainable management of uh, environmental assets on farms and incentivizing approaches like integrated pest management, good soil health, um, the, the use of um, good rotations, cover crops and so on. So will there not be an SFI standard then on beauty, access and heritage? We're not planning one on beauty, access and heritage. Uh, we're planning to deliver that through uh, the different scheme that we've already opened. I mean, have you considered which farms may be hit harder? I mean, you say that there's this scheme for protected landscapes, but it won't necessarily always be in protected landscapes that farmers have beauty, access and heritage to protect. 
So have you done an assessment of which farms are likely to be hit harder by the loss of that standard or the lack of that standard? Well, look, when we do the um, local nature recovery component, which is the second one, we'll be saying more about that in the new year. Uh, that is um, that is going to uh, have some payments for things like educational access and possibly some other access as well. So uh, where there's a case for it outside of those protected landscapes where a fund already exists and has been opened, we can obviously um, look at picking that up through local nature recovery. On um, the uplands, you're offering an introductory standard for moorland at a very low rate of £6.45 per hectare. Are you confident that moorland farmers are going to apply at that rate? Well, we'll see. Uh, obviously, with all of these things, um, the, the moorland rate had always been lower anyway, even under uh, BPS. The payment rate was significantly lower uh, than, the, uh, than the lowland and upland rate. So uh, it's always been the case that the support payment they've received has always been lower. Um, this is uh, you know, a relatively modest uh, rate at the start, but we will be looking to uh, increase the ambition of some of these uh, schemes and payments as we develop them. I mean, you talk about them historically having a lower rate, but wasn't that the entire point of taking back control of our agriculture policy? I mean, I remember you talked about the uplands quite a lot a few years ago and said we'd be able to offer them more support is that not happening now you're using a historical precedent to say well we're going to continue to keep the payment low well the sustainable farming incentive is about uh, farming sustainably and so it is about you know, encouraging good soil health uh, and therefore the sustainable farming incentive uh, by definition is likely to be something uh, that would be accessed more by some of the um you know, arable farms or low livestock farms. When you talk about the moorland uh, farms uh, where, um, uh, you know, there's less cultivation, less uh, work on soils, then the, some of the, um, the other components of the, of the policy, the local nature recovery, which is all about habitat creation, these will be things that some of those uh, moorland areas would be able to access uh, more readily. Uh, and the same is true for landscape recovery, where we'll be looking at some tree planting, land use change, peat restoration. Those components will be very much uh, designed with um, uh, moorlands and uplands in mind. But the whole point of the sustainable farming incentive was to make it universal so that all farmers could apply with very limited support. I mean, the local nature recovery and the landscape um, recovery, they're going to be more difficult to access, aren't they? So are you penalising upland farmers? No, I don't think so. So we do have, uh, it, there is a universal scheme that everyone can apply for. Um, it's just the, uh, the scope, obviously, of the, um, the, the initial sustainable farming incentive that we've got on the moorland rate uh, is, more, is more modest, given the nature of the farming in those areas. So do you expect that rate to go up then? As we build the ambition of the schemes, um, yes. So at the moment, uh, what we'll be announcing tomorrow uh, is um, uh, two key levels of ambition, but we will be expanding that um, in future years and adding other um, additional uh, modules as well. Before the referendums leave the EU, and actually after it too, you criticised the common agricultural policy because you said it wasn't fair because the largest payments went to the largest landowners. But looking at these proposals... That's exactly what's going to happen under the SFI, isn't it? I mean, this small payment, for example, it makes economic sense for the big estates, but far less for the small farmer 
And that's also going to be true for the rest of the scheme, isn't it? The more land that you have, the more gains there are to be had. Well, it's conceptually very different in that um, in future, this won't just be an arbitrary subsidy payment based on the land area you have. It will be a, a payment for what you do for the environmental assets on your land. So, yes, uh, an incentive to farm sustainably. Uh, and that goes without saying that if it's a, a larger farm over a larger area, that payment would be larger. But when it comes to local nature recovery, making space for nature on farms, maybe creating some woodland on some of the less uh, productive land parts of the holding, that's, um, that's very much something where the, the funds will be directed at those that uh, deliver the outcomes we're seeking, uh, not just doled out based on land area. How are you going to ensure that tenants will be able to access the scheme, particularly those under farm business tenancies who can't legally object to a landlord's refusal to allow them to enter the SFI? So we're working with the Tenant Farmers Association uh, on this very matter. Um, we have made sure that in the sustainable farming incentive, um, farmers, even with a, a short-term tenancy or with just two years to go, uh, on their tenancy agreement can access the sustainable farming incentive that's been welcomed uh, by the TFA and was requested by them. Uh, we're also, um, we've made some changes to the um, uh, the agriculture bill in its later stages. And so the Agriculture Act now uh, does have some specific protections uh, for tenant farmers uh, in this regard. But obviously we'll be uh, looking at making sure we design these in a way that tenant farmers can access. Are you concerned by the growing number of reports of institutional landlords signing up to environmental schemes with tenants contracted to deliver them? Um, that wouldn't necessarily um, be a bad approach, provided, it's, uh, provided there's fair contracting uh, within that. Um, there we are exploring, for instance, where you have parts of the country where people tend to rent land on a very short-term basis, whether there could be joint ventures created between a number of businesses that are renting land but are specialised uh, operations where they could share the land, you could create the kind of um, uh, uh, rotation that you're seeking but also have the landlords as, as part of that joint venture as well. So it is a model that we uh, shouldn't rule out because it could be one of the ways that we can deliver what we want while making sure uh, the tenants have fair access to the scheme. It is going to take away a potential revenue stream for tenants, though, isn't it? Um, well, not necessarily, obviously, if they, are, um, if they are receiving the payment. The way I would envisage it working is that certainly on the, uh, on, on the countryside, uh, well, on countryside stewardship, tenants can already uh, access those schemes uh, and do the sustainable farming incentive because it's very much around the way uh, a farmer is farming their land uh, in a, on a holistic basis and managing their soils. That's the kind of thing that a tenant farmer would very much be able to uh, access. Obviously, if you're looking at something like permanent land use change, planting of forestry or woodland, well, that is something you would uh, expect uh, the landlord to probably lead on uh, and be most involved in. You used to say that one of the key benefits of Brexit would be that less money was spent on inspections and more on farmers. Can you confirm that will still be the case? Because this scheme does look quite complex um, and it seems as though there's going to have to be quite a lot of monitoring for compliance. Well, we've already uh, taken the view when it comes to inspections coming out of the EU. First of all, 
uh, we switched off all of the so-called greening rules, uh, the, the three-crop rule, the requirement for environmental focus areas, that's gone. Uh, we've also uh, adopted a far more proportionate approach when it comes to the cross-compliance regime, uh, being much more willing to use uh, you know, warning letters or an improvement notice rather than the kind of arbitrary fines that used to be commonplace under the uh, European Union. So there's been a big change there already, a culture change. And it's a culture change that we'll want to make sure carries on into the new scheme. Are you comfortable with how the scheme is working out for commoners? So there's a low payment rate and there are costs associated with facilitating a commons agreement. Do you think this will be attractive? Well, we're working with um, the, the commons association and others uh, on this on this very issue. It is more challenging uh, with commons because if you had one farmer who refused to participate in a scheme well, it could affect the viability of a scheme on the rest of the common. Um, I think the right approach here is that uh, uh, individual uh, commons uh, you know, associations should, should lead in terms of marshalling uh, the farmers with access to that common uh, and getting a collective uh, agreement for an approach. Um, it's generally, that's what's happened previously when we've had countryside stewardship schemes, for instance, sometimes operating on common land. So it's not such a, a new concept, but we do uh, we are working with the Commons on that because we do recognise some have raised some concerns about the ability uh, of farmers on common land to access that. Moving away from the SFI now, can you give us your thoughts on the Environment Agency's interpretation of the farming rules for water? So there have been a lot of farmers across the country who've been prevented from spreading organic manure this autumn, but the Environment Agency is insisting it isn't doing anything different this year than last. What's going on here? Can you give us some clarity? Well, what we intend to do is, is issue guidance to the Environment Agency. Um, to be fair to them, they're, they're interpreting the farming rules for water, which were, uh, you know, uh, created some years ago, three or four years ago, as a, a reaction to a piece of EU legislation around the Water Framework Directive. It, uh, we do recognise that while that regulation was simply trying to put uh, an industry code of practice onto a statutory footing, it does mean that there are some ambiguities uh, in what the law requires and in particular what the uh, first section of those regulations require. So um, the government uh, is intending to issue statutory guidance to the Environment Agency to provide you know clarity in this area when can we expect that to happen uh, that will happen in the early part of next year um but in the meantime uh, you know the environment agency have already made clear to farmers that this is an issue that um would most likely present itself next autumn uh, so we'll be able to give clarity well in advance of that Quickly on diesel, um, I went to the East of England Farming Conference a couple of weeks ago and DEFRA Minister Lord Benyon said there that farmers won't be using diesel on farm in 15 years' time. Is the government intending to introduce incentives and penalties in order to phase it out or was this just an ambition of where he thinks the technology is going to take us? Well, I recently uh, met a large farming business in my own constituency uh, called Riviera Produce. They're very a very big producer of, of brassica uh, uh, crops. Uh, and they've actually been working on a, a project in Cornwall where uh, basically there's a, a particular technology put on slurry stores on some dairy farms. And rather than methane being a problem that escapes to the atmosphere, they've successfully worked out how to capture and bottle the methane uh, on farm. 
And then that methane uh, is being used as a substitute to diesel to power tractors. So they now have uh, one demonstration tractor working on the farm, uh, working normally, but rather than being powered by diesel, it's being powered by bottled methane. Uh, now, this is a very exciting uh, development, I think, and it shows that you can get the sort of technological advances that mean rather than wringing our hands and worrying about methane and its greenhouse gas properties, we can capture it, turn it into uh, a fuel source, and then no longer need to use diesel fuel in tractors. And so it's something we want to um, see develop further. Will you be doing anything as a government, though, to make sure that diesel is phased out over the next 15 years or so? Um, well, the general consensus is that it's much harder to remove um, diesel for, from heavy machinery, so from uh, buses or lorries or tractors. Uh, they need a high degree of torque and they need the, the power that comes with a diesel engine. And the general consensus is that, uh, for the most part, uh, either hydrogen fuel uh, or indeed, uh, if we could uh, capture and bottle methane from farms and use that as a fuel, those are the types of solutions that we would be looking at. Um, it's highly unlikely you could ever make electric vehicles work uh, on a, in a farm environment on the uh, amount of power that's needed. And so we're probably going to have to look at uh, things like hydrogen, um, <clears throat> hydrogen fuel tractors or, or indeed methane. So you won't be looking to introduce duty on red diesel or anything like that? No. Are you happy to be a DEFRA secretary at a time when polls are showing the popularity of the Conservatives is plummeting among rural voters? Uh, well, I am, uh, because the polls go up and down uh, and always have done in all my time in politics. But the crucial thing uh, for me is uh, I'm at DEFRA at a time of change. Uh, where there are some important policy agendas, some big opportunities, but some policies that we've got to get right. Thank you for joining us, Minister. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed the show. We will, of course, be back soon with more. But in the meantime, why not subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of Over the Farm Gate? You can also find information on all the payment rates and details about the SFI scheme on fginsight.com. Until next week, from us at FG, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now.